0: Welcome to
1: Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who knows, who knows in my toes, that there is no farms, no food. No farms, no food is a phrase made visible by the American Farmland Trust. And listeners can get a free bumper sticker um, by simply going to farmland.org. Last week, they hosted a Zoom call with U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. And so on today's show, we're going to be playing clips from this conversation. And um, if you want to hear um, his entire presentation, you can go to farmland.org and get a, a free bumper sticker at the same time. And joining us right now is the Director of Digital Communications, Greg Plotkin, thank you for joining Food Freedom Radio, Greg.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Great. So, give us a little background on the American Farmland Trust. Sure. So, American
0: Farmland Trust is a national nonprofit organization. Uh, we've got more than hundred staff and offices in uh, pretty, I think, twelve states across the country. We were founded in 1980 by a group of conservationists that saw a problem happening in America, that uh, our best farmland and ranchland was being lost to development, was being paved over and turned yeah. into housing developments, well, shopping malls.
1: Yeah, and I know, I, I'm, I'm from Dakota County, which had literally some of the best farmland in the world, and I witnessed that, we witnessed that, and worked really hard with people like Al, Al Singer here to try to protect that farmland, because it is some of the best soil. And once that farmland's Absolutely. gone, it's, it's gone.
0: It is. And, you know, there were some local organizations that were working on farmland protection at that time, but there was no national organization that was sort of tackling that issue at a big scale. Um, So American Farmland Trust, our mission is to protect farmland, promote sound farming practices and keep farmers on the land, because we know it's not just about protecting farmland. It's making sure that farmers can make a living and be viable as well as well.
1: So uh, last week you hosted a call with uh, U.S. Uh, with Biden's agriculture sec- secretary. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so these free-range conversations that we do, um, we've been doing them for about three years now. They are live events that we host uh, with AFT experts and other food system leaders where AFT members and supporters can connect with us directly, ask us questions, you know. Um, and we can explain to them. So last week we had our CEO and president, John Piatti, hosted a tele town hall with Secretary Vilsack, and they were on the line for an hour, um, you know, discussing the American Recovery Act, uh, regenerative farming practices, and kind of where the USDA is headed in the future.
1: And there was, there's a lot of information covered, and uh, food, federal food policy is very complex, and one word I heard over and over again was the word comprehensive. And so right now, I want to uh, play a clip. Um, so, Patrick, uh, if you can play that first clip. Um, this is from a caller in Iowa.
2: Yes, sir. Go ahead. Well, thank you for uh, letting me speak. Uh, I live in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and uh, I'm just curious— uh, Mr. Vilsack, can, can we have it both ways with industrial agriculture as it is today? And, you know, we sell billions of dollars worth of food to China and various other countries, you know. And uh, can we have it both ways and yet have a healthy soil and uh, get a limit on uh, global warming?
3: Uh, Leland, I, I will tell you, I think the market, whether it's selling overseas or selling domestically, is going to continue to demand more sustainability and proof of sustainability. Uh, I, you know, for four years I worked prior to getting this job again uh, in the Dairy Export Council, and I can tell you on multiple occasions I was asked uh, concerning the sustainability efforts of the U.S. dairy industry by overseas buyers. Uh, this is a growing concern in many key markets. Uh, people are deeply concerned about climate. They expect and want agriculture to step up, and I think American agriculture is prepared to do that. And I think over, that's the paradigm shift over time. That's going to change the way people look at things. Uh, if you create multiple income sources, it's going to give our farmers multiple options uh, instead of uh, the traditional way of, of growing crops and feeding crops to livestock. Uh, that's obviously going to continue, but we need to create more, and here's why. Uh, and, John, this is an amazing statistic. Uh, ERS, uh, the Economic Research Service, put out a chart not long ago, and it just startled me because it showed 89.6% of American farms, the income from those farms is not the majority of income generated by the people operating those farms. In other words, in 89.6% of farms in this country, the farm owner had to have outside farm income uh, Mm -hmm. to be able to, uh, to maintain the farm. We just can't have that. Now, you know, there are people like myself, you know, I, I, I own a farm, but, but that's not who we're talking about here. We're talking about the folks that Leland's talking about and the folks right. uh, that Mike talked about. Uh, we've got to figure out alternative ways, additional income sources that are tied to conservation, that are tied to climate, that are tied to carbon sequestration, that are tied to creating uh, a, a, a market for uh, agricultural waste that doesn't exist today that creates three, four, five different ways on that same farm today to make a living. And if you create that kind of diversity of opportunity, I think you're going to see a lot of shift, a lot of change in the way in which people approach farming. Uh, and hopefully over that over, over time, it means healthier soil, greater productivity, cleaner water, and, and, and a transition uh, that allows us to, to be able to continue to meet an export market that is demanding sustainability as well as that local and regional uh, food system or that domestic consumer that wants it as well.
1: Yeah. So that was a clip um, from um, uh, the USA secretary, Tom Vilsack. So um, Greg is with us with uh, farmland.org. Uh, so he really covered a lot in that because, uh, you know, um, it is again, American agriculture is so complex. What's your takeaway from what you just heard?
0: So you're right. There is a lot, um, So I think to start with the caller who asked if we can have it both ways, I think that's an important question and something at American Farmland Trust, we are scale neutral. We don't think that small farms are better than big farms. Big farms are better than small farms. We see a place at the table for farmers uh, of all sizes. And so like Mr. Vilsack said, I think that it's really about the practices that you use. I think that you you can implement environmentally friendly farming practices regardless of scale. And if the market is demanding that, I think more farmers will do it. The other thing that uh, the secretary was talking about are carbon markets, markets that will essentially pay farmers for the environmental benefits that they provide. And by providing farmers with another income stream, um, I think that's going to go a long way to convincing farmers that these practices are not only good for the environment, but good for their bottom line. And that's really one of the biggest barriers to broader adoption, is making it profitable for farmers to implement these practices.
1: Well, and when you talked about, um, you know, uh, 89, almost 90 percent of farm income, um, these and, – and I, I know um, I, I there's something about the small-scale farmers that is passionate, and it, it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of – and I know at one point you said uh, about farmers and identity, but – you know, there's there, there's something on, on on the heart of America's soul that is attached to those small-scale farmers. It doesn't mean that big farmers are bad, but 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 yep. to actually try to support this ecosystem of small farmers being able to make a living on the land, and there was a lot of conversation about that.
0: There was, and I come from a farming background. I've been involved in agriculture for 20 years. My brother currently farms outside of Denver, Colorado. And he can't make a living full-time farming, even though he's successful. You know, he can sell all his products. He has really committed customers. But there are all these barriers, especially for small farmers to be successful in agriculture. Number one, land is incredibly expensive. Unless you have a family that owns land and has been in agriculture for a long time, that is almost an unsurmountable barrier for most people to be able to buy enough land, to be able to grow enough product to be able to survive. Um, and so by I think that that's the number one barrier I think that we need to address in order to help small farmers really survive. They need to be able to access land. They need to be able to have support from USDA and their local state departments of ag, and they need the resources to be successful. Um, and unless we address those barriers, I think it's going to continue to be difficult for small farmers to, to make a living without having to work off-farm.
1: Yeah, and um, I mean it's uh, again getting back to that 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 saying: no farms, no food. And if if a farmer cannot make a living farming, I mean it's just you know the, the entire system somehow is um, I don't even know how to say it really is except for that it 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 doesn't spark my soul. I mean, <laughs> and, and and sure, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, and the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that. Farming is a profession, but farming is also uh, a community service. I mean, farmers are growing food that nourish people. They're producing fiber that clothes people. They're producing fuel that allows people to heat their homes and drive their cars. And so I, I think that's one of the things that is very unique about agriculture is that it's not just a job that someone goes to every day, makes money, provides for their family. They are providing for their community for the nation and for the world sometimes, too. And I think that needs a special level of support.
1: And there was a lot of conversations about supporting diverse farms, um, uh, especially uh, farms from um, uh, socially disadvantaged farmers um, and farms of all sizes.
0: Yes, and I think that's one of the the things that uh, American Farmland Trust has been really excited about in the early days of uh, the Biden administration and with Secretary Dalsak being in charge of the USDA, again, is that there is this focus on providing support and resources to people that have been marginalized um, for a long time, whether that's black farmers, women farmers, um, smaller farmers. Um, There is this recognition now that a lot of the support and resources that agriculture has received has kind of been to the big corporate farmers. Um, And now I think there's a big push to to make it more equitable, make it more fair, and make and make access to those support and resources um, more equal.
1: Right, and we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about the socially disadvantaged farmer program. Um, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking with Greg Plopkin from um, Farmland.org. No food, no no farms, no food. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, Um, and uh, uh, you're listening to AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and right now we're talking with Greg Plopkin. He's with uh, Farmland.org. And um, so last week, um, the organization hosted U.S. um, Agriculture Secretary, um, talking about the American Rescue Plan. So that's also another complex plan. So what were some of the highlights?
0: So some of the highlights talking about that plan is I think there's a lot of good stuff being proposed uh, in terms of debt relief for socially disadvantaged farmers, uh, a new focus on developing markets that pay farmers for the environmental benefits that they provide, um, and just a focus on really what we need to do as a nation to make the next generation of farmers successful in agriculture. Um, I think a lot of the details about what's going to go into the American rescue plan and how that's actually going to impact farmers on the ground are still being worked out. But our policy team in Washington, D.C. is kind of on the ground, uh, talking to the secretary, talking to elected officials. And we're going to have more analysis out on that in the coming days and weeks.
1: And one of the things about this Zoom call is that people are able to ask questions. And so, uh, Patrick, right now I want to play the question from um, Justin from South Dakota. He asked about this program.
0: Hi am curious and we've been getting a lot of questions down this way um, as to the administration uh, their plans on the uh, the socially disadvantaged farmer rancher uh, debt relief um, some of the mm-hmm. things that people are curious about has been the time frame on debt repayment uh, if there is going to be any relief um, coming down to the pike for those who have applied and been denied in the past year um, due to various reasons. And we just want to kind of ask, you know, uh, what what the administration's looking at doing in all of those regards. And thank you guys for hosting this call and, and Secretary Vilsack for being here with us today.
3: You bet. Um, the debt relief package was crafted by Congress. So obviously uh, the, the – the, uh, Program is basically designed by Congress and has to be implemented by the Department of Agriculture. Um, it essentially involves only those people, based on the statute, based on the law, only those people who have who have borrowed money from the Department of Agriculture either through our direct loan program, our farm ownership or farm uh, uh, operating loan program, or our storage farm storage program, or who went to a commercial bank and had their loan guaranteed by the USDA. And fall within the socially disadvantaged category. There's a specific definition of that. The definition is is those folks who are who are designated as such based on racial or ethnicity uh, factors. Uh, so it's you know it's roughly I don't know it's probably 16,000 people that we know of who have direct loans or guaranteed loans. Uh, so those loans over a period of time will be will be paid off. Uh, and you asked the question, well, why would you pay them off? Well, in large part, because there, the, many of these, not necessarily all, but many of these folks were discriminated against uh, for a number of years. And as a result of that discrimination, they were not able over a period of years, over a period of decades, to take full advantage of USDA programs. Uh, and as a result, their their operations didn't grow or didn't grow at the rate that their neighbors down the road who had full access uh, to USDA uh, programs uh, grew. And the the proof of that is is in the way in which the COVID relief monies were distributed under the previous administration. Um, again, I, I said this earlier, 99% of those resources, according to one study, uh, went to white farmers. And the top 10% of farmers in that category received 60% of the billions of dollars that were provided in relief. The bottom 10%, the socially disadvantaged people of color, Uh, farmers, they received 0.26%. To state it another way, if you take a look at the people within the COVID relief packages who self-identified, self-identified as either white or black or Hispanic, uh, uh, that represented about 25% of the total number of farmers who received COVID benefits. Of that number, that 25%, black farmers in that group received $20 million in help and assistance, black farmers, $20 million white farmers in that category, uh, social, uh, self-identified received $5.6 billion. <laughs> so you see the gap. So the, the program here is designed to essentially say, look, that, that's, that's a problem because it, that's going to allow that gap between folks to grow. And it's going to mean we're going to have fewer farmers. So at the end of the day, we want more farmers. We want to keep people on the land. So this, this, this plan is designed to respond to the cumulative effect of discrimination over a period of time as well as to also recognize there was significant help provided to white farmers in covid relief this sort of balances that out a little bit now those you, you ask I'm about sorry, go on. Sorry, go on. you ask about uh, uh, individuals who uh, who, were, who were denied those who were denied in the past I can tell you that they were part of, uh, many of them were part of of class action lawsuits that when I was secretary before.
1: So, yeah, so that's, I mean, there was a lot to unpack in that clip, um, but I'm going to repeat that figure that under the previous administration, (laughs) black farmers got $20 million, whereas white farmers got $5.6 billion. And so that's a problem.
0: Absolutely. And I think what you hear the secretary say is that, Uh, The relief this time around is a lot about uh, um, addressing the discrimination that has gone on in the past. So the most recent past, as you mentioned, where white farmers received 99 percent of the uh, COVID relief funds under the prior administration, but also the long history of discrimination um, from farmers of color who were not able to access loans and support and other resources that their white uh, farmers and neighbors were able to access.
1: Yeah, and narrowing that gap, and we want more farmers, more, more farmers and a diverse farm, um, diverse people being able to farm and own land, um, that just um, leads to a more abundant future.
0: We need more farmers. I think one of the biggest issues facing our nation is not having as many farmers right, as we have in the past. But, I mean, there, there's data that you can look at that tells you, you know, the percentage of people that um, list farmer as their occupation, and it has steadily gone down over the last century. And when you have less people producing food, that lends itself to having bigger farmers that are responsible for more of the food system. And another thing that you heard in that call is the disruption that that kind of uh, consolidation had When COVID happened, when you have a few companies or a few farmers who produce a large amount or process a large amount of the food, when there is a pandemic or something that disrupts that, it impacts everyone across the whole country. So by, you know, having more farmers that are producing smaller amounts of food for their communities directly, I think it makes us a lot more resilient as a nation.
1: Right. And there's I don't remember what the average age of farmer is, but I know it's a lot higher than the average age of an American
0: (laughs) I think it's about 58.4 or something right around there.
1: OK, we're going to we're going to take a break and when we're going to come back. We're going to talk and connect all the dots with the climate change was also mentioned, as was COVID a lot on this call. Uh, right now we're talking with uh, Greg Plotkin. He's with um, uh, American Farmland Trust. Um, people can get a free uh, no farms, no food bumper sticker by going to farmland.org. We're listening to um, Agricultural Secretary Tom Vilsack was speaking last week um, on a blog call. And you can hear the whole thing by going to farmland.org. I don't know what to do, my love is running over, I don't know what to do. Words are flowing out like endless rain into a Welcome back to Food Freedom freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who knows no farms, no food. And no farms, no food is a phrase made visible by American Farmland Trust. And uh, listeners can get a free bumper sticker and uh, listen to the entire presentation from Tom Bilsack by going to farmland.org. With us online right now is Greg Plopkin. Um, uh, Greg, there's this huge connection between climate change and agriculture that's finally getting uh, more and more more visibility. But um, give us a, um, a, a sketch of, of, of what you guys know about climate change and agriculture.
0: Well, so I think the narrative for a long time has been that uh, agriculture is a problem and causes climate change. And American Farmland Trust, we're not saying that there are no issues in agriculture and that there's not things that our nation's farmers and ranchers can do better. But we really see agriculture as an opportunity to combat climate change. No, uh, I mean, America's farmers and ranchers steward more land and water resources than anyone. And if they implement environmentally sound farming practices on their land, they have the ability to capture carbon in the soil, help us improve our air and water, and really be champions for, for climate change. And so we're trying to shift the narrative a little bit from being farming is a problem to farming is an opportunity that we need to really seize.
1: And we're going to play a clip right now. Um, And again, this is Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack.
2: AP has been promoting better soil health for decades, and it's great to finally see the growing public awareness that farming can be um, part of the climate solution. Now, I know that advancing regenerative practices and Climate Smart Act is a high priority for you, Mr. Secretary, because we've communicated about it. But but tell us a little bit about how you're going to make this a real priority within USDA.
3: Well, we want to encourage every aspect of USDA to have uh, a role, a uh, 360-degree approach to climate. And and basically, our, our big idea that comes out of this is, Despite the existential threat that climate change uh, represents to all of us, we think there is an incredibly large opportunity side to the climate Uh discussion, particularly as it relates to agriculture in rural rural America. We think that it can fundamentally change the direction of agriculture in the U.S. and also create much more prosperity in rural communities. Now, how do we do that? Well, first of all, we need to engage every tool available at USDA to focus it on this, this opportunity. We know that there are 45 practices uh, that are uh, referred to as climate-smart agricultural practices, regenerative uh, agricultural practices. We know that if we target, if we focus our conservation resources, there will be greater adoption of those 45 practices, and that will be a benefit in terms of soil health, carbon, carbon capture and sequestration, better water, better wildlife habitat. But it's got to be more than that. It also has to be uh, the opportunity to look at our CRP program. Uh, a uh-huh. program that currently is underutilized, uh, it was during the Trump administration, by about 4 million acres. We think there are opportunities to to, to really ramp up uh, the CRP program, uh, get that back to where it needs to be, and maybe even then some, um, so that we have uh, opportunities uh, uh, to utilize that program fully and completely. We think that there's a regional conservation partnership program focused uh, where we're looking at large-scale watersheds uh, and landscapes uh, to encourage uh, collaborative efforts that would be climate oriented. So it's not just an individual farm. It's not just an individual, a couple of farms in an area. It's a large scale, uh, massive program, uh, that involves multiple partners, multiple farmsteads, uh, at, at, in a way to, uh, encourage, uh, uh climate smart practices. We're going to encourage and, and invest more in our climate hubs. So we do the assessment, uh, the, the evaluation, the, uh, the extension of information that farmers can, can then use uh, to, do, to be better climate stewards. We think there's a terrific opportunity on the research side. We're already creating a multitude of decision tools to make it easier for people to be climate smart. We want to shorten the supply chain. I mentioned the, the importance of expanding processing capacity. Uh, that has a carbon footprint. Uh, local and regional food systems and the development of more of those, so food doesn't have to travel quite as far. Also important, proper forest management, key a Civilian Climate uh, core that puts uh, hopefully thousands of people uh, to work, uh, assisting and helping in adaptation and mitigation strategies, using the procurement capacity and power of the federal government to support climate-friendly uh, uh, businesses, and also taking a look at establishing, uh, you can call it a market, you can call it a bank, you can call it a fund, uh, but essentially providing some mechanism by which we can sense pay, compensate farmers for the sequestration of carbon. We think there is a tremendous opportunity to shape a, a fund in a way that is very farmer-specific. The markets today, the, the, the carbon markets today, aren't really designed for farmers. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a bit of a hassle. Uh, the, fee, the, the charge or the, the credit uh, is not as valuable as it needs to be in order to get people's attention. So very few of those credits have actually uh, been invested, if you will, in agricultural practices. We think at USDA we have the resources and the flexibility and the smarts and the input from farmers, most importantly of all, to be able to fashion and create a, a carbon fund that will essentially allow us to encourage more investment, more sequestration uh, of uh, of land. I'm sure we're going to get to talk about the 3030 programs, so I'm not going to talk yep. specifically about that, but that's, that's, there's a role there uh, for yeah. it to be played as well in the climate uh, discussion. Key here is creating revenue streams, creating ways in which agricultural waste can be converted into – A multitude of new products to move away from fossil fuels to create a more circular more regenerative economy uh, on the farm creating multiple revenue streams we think American agriculture is ready for this they understand the market is going to demand it uh, and they are obviously very interested in making sure that we don't continue to lose roughly four tons of topsoil per acre per year we can't continue to sustain that and we certainly can't continue to sustain the loss of, of farmland to development at the rate uh, that one of your recent reports suggested about 2000 acres uh, a day being lost that's a tremendous
1: uh yeah 2000 acres of farmland being lost every day and again that is the secretary of agriculture tom vilsack so uh, a lot to unpack in that segment uh, greg um uh, let's start with where we ended um farmland because that's um the farmland trust um we're losing 2000 acres um every year or
0: absolutely
1: Every day. I'm sorry, uh, 2,000 acres every day. day. 2,000 acres every day. And as you can tell from that
0: clip, it was a very rich conversation. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot Uh, of details. So we... We recently released a report called Farms Under Threat that um, is the most comprehensive analysis of farmland loss in the U.S. ever undertaken. You can go to our website and dig into the details. We actually have an interactive map where you can zoom into any state or county all across the country and see the rate of farmland loss in that place. But the key takeaway is we are losing farmland rapidly in this country. And it's not just, you know, Some rangeland, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. It is our best, most productive, most resilient farmland that we're using. So, that we're losing. So, really, the farmland that is best suited to grow food in the future.
1: Yeah, and um, uh, and one of the other things he said is shorten supply chains. And so we've heard that the average vegetable, whatever, travels fifteen hundred miles, and so that obviously causes more carbon emission. And so, how do we um, shorten those supply chains?
0: So, as I mentioned before, consolidation is a huge issue. And I think one of the things, if you you know are a local food uh, advocate like me, what you've seen during the age of coronavirus is there have been severe processing delays for small farmers that raise chickens and beef cattle and pigs who have animals that are ready to go to market but cannot get slots at their local processing facility. And I think one of the things that you have to do to shorten supply chains is put more of those uh, resources back into communities. And so, you know, we've been consolidating processing for a long time in this country. And so, um, you know, if, you, if you're a farm and you've got a lot of beef, you have to send it to one or two companies to get processed. If you have more resources in communities, they can do more of that processing locally. They can build more jobs locally, and they can get that food to more local people quicker. And they're a little bit more... Um, they're better able to cope with disruptions, right? If you're getting your your food from someone that lives Mm -hmm. maybe within 50 or 100 miles from you and something like, you know, a COVID-19 pandemic happens, it's a lot easier for that person to continue to be able to provide you with that than, you know, someone who's growing and processing your food from hundreds, if not thousands of miles away.
1: Right. I mean, that's the one thing that COVID-19 made very visible to us is that our food system is very, very fragile. and Antifragile systems antifragile systems are naturally diverse systems, so having a lot of small exactly. processors add to that, and yet the money with you know when four companies control eighty percent of the meat slaughtering, all that consolidation. So how do how do how do we um, how do we support the smaller processing and, and recreate that?
0: So I think we have to devote resources at both a federal, state and local level. To building back that kind of infrastructure so it's not just about processing facilities like it's cold storage right Mm -hmm. it's co-packing places that can turn your tomatoes into tomato sauce Um, and i think there's a real market for that but i think it is an investment that we have to make as a nation and as communities that these these types of businesses are important not just for you know the farmers that they support or the people who work at them, but for all of our communities, it makes us more resilient. And so uh, I'm I'm hoping that the American Rescue Plan and, you know, new programs that the USDA is going to roll out over the next four years are, are going to address some of these, these gaps that we're seeing.
1: And the other thing that was mentioned in that clip is compensating farmers for um, carbon farming. So what does that look like? A cover crops? What does that look like, compensating for carbon farming?
0: So it's very uh, vague right now what that actually looks like, but... Um what we're talking about is carbon markets, ecosystem services markets. they There are a lot of different names for them. But as I mentioned before, they pay farmers for the environmental benefits that they produce. so clean air, clean water, healthy soil. And the way that w- would work is that farmers would basically prove that they're implementing practices on some sort of scale they would be able to offer credits on the open market. And then companies who are trying to offset their own carbon emissions or other entities could buy those credits from farmers. And so it would give these farmers another income stream in addition to whatever they're growing. um, And it would also incentivize the broader scale adoption of conservation practices if farmers knew that there was a market for those benefits that those practices were providing.
1: Okay, and so what were when they were referring to the thirty thirty program? What was that about? Yes, so the the Biden
0: administration has recently come out um, with thirty by thirty goals, which is basically saying they want to protect thirty percent of land by twenty thirty, and that's something that American Farmland Trust is very supportive of. Um, we came out with a series of recommendations related to thirty by thirty, which can be viewed on our website, and we're basically advocating for the permanent protection of 5% of our working lands and the broad adoption of conservation practices on another 25% to meet those goals. And I think the thing that this is kind of laid bare and one of the things that I'd really like your audience to think about is if land is paved over, if a farm is paved over, you lose the potential of that land to contribute to climate change adaptation, right? If something is a housing development, you cannot store carbon in the soil. And so I think f- protecting farmland protecting farmland to reach these. No farms, yeah.
1: no farms, no food. So we're going to take another break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit more about COVID and the future of agriculture.
0: That I have heard about so far across the sea.
1: Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, and uh, we're playing clips from a presentation that uh, U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack gave to the uh, No Farms, No Food um, group, American Farmland Trust. And here's a little clip that um, also refers to Minnesota. Minnesota did get mentioned in terms of the Minnesota Water Certification Program. So let's play that now, Patrick.
2: So I, I want to read this one. Um, someone wrote in, I would like to thank the secretary for his foresight last time in office. In creating the highly successful minnesota agricultural water quality certification program and then he goes on to say or she i'm not sure who, who it is certified farms are proving more profitable than non-certified um, and the reductions in um in np and soil and sediment loss um are are really great so um Someone, uh, someone giving you well, a, a, a thumbs up for work well. Well, I, I appreciate comments pre- or reactions. <laughs> well,
3: I appreciate that, and they and, and the folks in Minnesota were kind enough to give me a uh, a sign, uh, a little pl- a placard uh, that uh, celebrated their certification program, which they asked me to display in my office. Now, you know, I am I, I am the United States Secretary of Agriculture, but I am also from Iowa. Uh, and uh-huh. there's an uh-huh. interesting dynamic between Iowa and Minnesota. <laughs> um, and so it was. I, I used to chide my Iowa friends how difficult it was for me to showcase what was going on in Minnesota when the same thing needed to go on in Iowa uh, because we've got some challenges on the water side. But, look, it's a great program. And I'll tell you, we cut our teeth on programs like that. It's precisely what we're talking about. If you give people incentives, if you encourage them to do the right thing, if you give them the resources, they're going to do the right thing.
2: hmm uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely
1: great um I have... yeah giving people incentives and then um later on someone else asked um about the covid and um and that you know one of the things that we really remember from the covid is the dumping of the milk and all of that mm-hmm. that happened and when I think of our whole food system it's what do we incentivize in the structures of our current food system and what do we want to incentivize? Uh, what do we want to uh Make incentive. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm mongling my words here. I'm mongling my words here, but I think you know what I mean, <laughs> Greg. Um, yeah. So you want to talk on that a little bit? Well,
0: I do. So I, I think it's a lot about, uh, you know, what consumers are demanding, right? I think a lot of consumers are demanding uh, cheap food, readily available as possible. They want it in the grocery store. 24-7, you know, strawberries in January and things like that. And so I think one of the main ways that we can incentivize, um, you know, kind of more diverse, regionally appropriate production is to be better consumers and to get to know our farmers and get to know their struggles. I, I think that's one of the things working at American Farmland Trust that I'm always surprised about how, how few people actually have ever met a farmer or kind of know what, it, what goes into farming. And when you get to know farmers, I think you get to know more about what their barriers are, right? Like, what keeps them from being successful? And so some of the things we've talked about, land access, consolidation and processing, um, things like that. And so I think the first step is identifying what those issues are, having really uh, open conversations with agricultural producers, getting to know them, their families, what their struggles are and then formulating programs at the federal, state, and local level that really pinpoint uh, support for, for those issues.
1: And from, uh, from the federal, federal policy, what federal policy has been um, giving the incentives for is, you know, like uh, he pointed out earlier, 99% of, of the money went to white farmers. Uh, what, in, in a lot of ways, our federal system has been um, giving favors to the big egg, and, and that has sort of made a very unlevel playing field.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things I think we at AFT are most excited about with this new administration is that there is that recognition that the playing field has been unlevel and that there is this need to kind of rectify the wrongs of the past. And so you heard the secretary talk a lot about loan forgiveness and other support that he hopes uh, will be given to socially disadvantaged farmers. And then in terms of incentivizing, I think you can incentivize the production of certain types of food, but you can also incentivize certain production practices. So no-till, cover crops, things like that. Um, And so if you give farmers that incentive to switch to these practices, they're going to do it. I have not met one farmer in my time in agriculture that does not want to be a good steward of the land. The thing is, like, like I've mentioned a few times, farming is a job just like any other, and it can be difficult to make uh, investments in doing things different ways, even if you want to, and so I think incentivizing the right type of farming practices is just as important as incentivizing the right type of food.
1: Right, and that's what was great about this conversation, is it talked about how how do we how do we how how do we how do we make farming in a way that honors future generations functional for people today.
0: Well, I think one of the things you do is you have to prove to farmers that it is worth it. And so one of the some of the research that AFT has done, which I find to be really exciting, um, we have these soil health case studies that basically looked at uh, farms all around the country that produced, you know, different items from almonds in California to corn and soy in Iowa. And they looked at different practices environmentally friendly practices that these people produced and then tried to quantify the economic impact of that. And what we found was that when farmers implement these practices, they make money doing them. They decrease their inputs, they increase their outputs. And it's not just something, it's not just a feel good story, right? It's not something you just do to say that you do it as a farmer. It's something you do and can help you thrive. And I think making that case to farmers is going to be really important to much broader adoption of these types of practices.
1: And I've heard so many people say that, including David Montgomery, that um, if regenerative agriculture pays better. And you know, right now, was the statistic ninety percent of farmers need another second job. So if you can make growing food pay well, and it's like, what else does our humans need to do? But you know, then then we can have uh, the the soil thriving, water quality type of food system that our grandchildren deserve.
0: And that's one of the things we say all the time at American Farmland Trust when we talk about farmland protection. The very best way to keep land in agriculture is to make it profitable for farmers. The reason that a lot of farmers sell their land to development is because they're not making money and they need a way to support their families. If you want to keep land in agriculture, you keep farmers successful. It's as simple as that.
1: So American Farmland Trust, Greg Plopkin, last minute, anything else you'd like to say?
0: I just appreciate the time today to speak about agriculture in this recent conversation with Secretary Vilsack. It's a incredibly exciting time, uh, especially at the federal level, where we're having an administration that really wants to embrace these issues that American Farmland Trust has worked on for a long time. Climate change, equity in agriculture, keeping farmers on the land. We think that very bright things are in store for the next four years, and we can't wait to keep everyone updated on that as it happens.
1: Awesome. And you can go to your website and get a free bumper sticker.
0: Absolutely, and then send us a picture. Show us if you put it on your truck or anything. We, we love to see them in action.
1: Okay, so uh, and the website's as simple as it gets, farmland.org. Um, thank you so much, Greg, and thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.
2: And you know who I'm talking to.